Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, so says the U.S. Constitution. But what about Facebook or Twitter or any social media platform? Those companies face no constraints on setting limits on what people can say on their platforms. It is, after all, their ballgame. They own the space. But should they be limiting speech when it is so offensive sometimes and morally threatening that it crosses the line into what we call hate speech? Same for information that is false, pretending to be true, what some call fake news. Would doing so turn these companies into censorship factories where definitions of what's hateful could take us down a slippery slope on which free expression is put at serious risk? Or perhaps should these uh, same companies take a page from the First Amendment and encourage speech to run as far as it wants to? Well, we think all this has the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. I'm John Donvan. I stand between two teams of two experts in this topic who will argue for and against this resolution. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia will choose the winner. And if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. One more reminder to our audience to cast your pre-debate vote. Visit iq2us.org forward slash vote. And remember, it's the difference between the first vote and the second vote that determines our winners. Our resolution, one more time, constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. Let's meet the team arguing for the resolution. Please first welcome David French. David, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You are a senior writer for the National Review. You're an attorney. Sometimes you say you're a recovering attorney. Uh, you're a free speech advocate. You're a veteran, a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. You have a New York Times bestselling book out uh, and another one called The Great American Divorce coming out this year. Uh, after your long career in law and your love of the First Amendment, the fact that we are at the National Constitution Center, a shrine to the Constitution, do, does being here give you chills? <laughs> The debate gives me chills because it reminds me of uh, two dates, 1789, the date the Constitution was ratified, and 1798, the date that the founding generation passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, indicating that debates about free speech have been alive as long as our Constitution has been alive. And are still with us as we're going to be debating tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, again, David French. And you have a partner arguing this with you. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Corinne McSherry. Corinne, thanks so much for joining us at IQ2. You are the legal director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. That, if you don't know, is a nonprofit that defends civil liberties in the digital world. Uh, Corinne, you have said that some of your favorite cases involve defending political expression. Do you have a particular example you can share? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to choose. So I'll just tell you about a recent case that was particularly fun. And that involved a situation where a group of activists took to the streets of Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia, and New York, handing out spoof copies of the Washington Post, um, in which the headline announced that Trump had at last resigned. Um, it was lots of fun. They got lots of attention. The Washington Post also paid attention and was not happy. Um, so they received a legal threat. They called us. We intervened. And we explained to the Washington Post what they should already know, which is that that spoof was protected by the First Amendment. Washington Post should know that. They realized it. They backed down. We called it a win. <laughs> I can see what kind of debater you are already. Again, ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the resolution. 
And we have a team arguing against this resolution. Please first welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Nate Persily. Nate, it's great to have you at Intelligence Squared. First time here, and you are a professor at Stanford Law. You are the director of the Stanford Project on Democracy and the Internet. You're now working on a new research project that is likely to come up tonight. You are leading the charge to make Facebook data available for election research. Tell us a little about what that's about. So along with a Harvard professor named Gary King, uh, I co-chair something called Social Science One. And this is an attempt to make Facebook data available to the world's scientific community in a safe, privacy-protected way uh, to ensure that we can figure out the answers as to how social media is affecting democracy around the world. Oh, sounds very interesting. And we'll be hearing more about this after the election, I'm guessing. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Nate Persily, thank you. And your partner, Maritza Schake, you have traveled some way to come with us. It's great to have you here at Intelligence Squared. You are a Dutch politician. You are a member of the European Parliament. You are also the founder of the European Parliament Intergroup on the Digital Agenda for Europe. In 2017, Politico named you one of the 28 most influential Europeans, calling you the ultimate digital MEP. Uh, we don't know what MEP means. What is that? Oh, it means... Oh, member of the European, European Parliament. Yes. Sorry. Yes, yes, yes. So what I'm really asking you is what does the ultimate digital MEP mean? It's digital is the word I should be focusing yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. So um, for the past 10 years that I've had the pleasure of serving in the European Parliament, I've tried to bring the worlds of technology and politics closer together because I think it is more important with every day that passes. Technology is everywhere. Uh, digitization impacts all aspects of life, and it's very, very important that politicians are able to make the right decisions. So uh, I suppose because I'm one of a few that's focused on this, that uh, got me that uh, curious got, title. You got very important. And you're right. It, it is affecting all aspects of life, which mm -hmm. is why we're debating. And again, please welcome the team arguing against the resolution. <laughs> and so on to the debate. We start with round one. Round one will be opening statements by each debater in turn. The statements will be six minutes each. The resolution is constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. Up first to argue for the motion, Corinne McSherry, legal director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Ladies and gentlemen, Corinne McSherry. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here to talk about this topic. I feel like this is what I live and breathe these days, because um, that's the reality of, of defending speech online is talking about content moderation and trying to figure out what to do about it. Um, because I think one thing we should surely be able to agree on is that it desperately needs saving. The content moderation system, um, what we call sometimes platform or private censorship, um, is fundamentally broken. What Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, Medium, everybody's trying to manage all the content on their platforms and make sure nobody ever says anything bad, and it's not working. In fact, it's fundamentally broken. Now, let me start by acknowledging something. The internet offers extraordinary tools for us to connect, to organize, to educate, access information. It's an amazing, amazing thing. But the reality is online speech can also be awful ugly and cause real world harm. So I want to get out of the gate by acknowledging that that is true. The question is, what's the best way to address that problem? And the reality is that the current system of content moderation is not the answer. Let me count the ways. 
First of all, the fact of the matter is social media platforms are just really bad at deciding what speech should stay up and what should stay down. So I'll just give you a few examples. We've seen prohibitions on hate speech used to shut down conversations between women and color about online harassment. We've seen rules against harassment used to shut down the accounts of activists um, in Egypt, in the United States, and around the world. We've seen a ban on nudity to be used to take down classic artworks, including the Philadelphia Museum of Art had its account flagged because it posted a so-called suggestive painting of a woman eating an ice cream cone. That was taken down by Facebook. Um, queer and transgender youth hoping to connect with new communities are having difficulty doing so because of Facebook's real names policy, which prevents them from engaging online anonymously. Regulations on violent content have been forced offline, documentation of police brutality, war atrocities, human rights abuses, and so on. In fact, it's so bad that there are just two articles just last week detailing the difficulty that Facebook and other platforms are having trying to figure out a sane and coherent policy for online speech. They just can't do it, and it may be because it's impossible. Um, another thing that's happening related to that is that this content moderation, it's causing real harm to the moderators. They are, end up having PTSD-like symptoms when they have to review all this awful content and make decisions about it. And then governments are getting into the mix. So they are in, inserting themselves into takedown decisions. Um, and in Latin America, just recently, campaigns against so-called fake news or misinformation is being used as an excuse to silence critics. So we have a real problem here. And the final thing that makes me particularly frustrated is if the goal was to stop hate and counter extremism, it's not working. So for example, Facebook's real names policy that prevents people from engaging anonymously didn't stop Russia from gaming the system. Counterterrorism experts tell us that, a quote, censorship is never an effective means of achieving security. Shuttering websites, suppressing content will be as unhelpful as smashing printing presses. So it strikes me as just a little bit crazy that so many people are pushing for the companies to double down on what is clearly a failing system. We need a better approach. And we can start by turning to our core constitutional principles. If we did that, if we looked to the First Amendment as a guidepost, we might have a few things. Perhaps we could get to clearer definitions of what content should and should not be restricted on what terms by looking to, for example, decades of defamation law where judges have been wrestling with precisely this issue. Companies could apply a kind of strict scrutiny to their um, policies. Is do we need to accomplish a compelling public interest here? Is this the best way to do it, the most narrowly tailored way to do it? Um, our default could be that speech stays up rather than going down, following our long tradition of no prior restraints on speech in the United States. We would have stronger protections for anonymity, which would mean that ordinary users, activists, organizers could find each other and activate communities with less fear of retaliation. And above all, we could have due process protections. In the First Amendment context, the burden of proving that speech is unprotected or shouldn't be protected rests with the censor. And the censor has to, um, if it takes content down, go to court, get a review quickly. 
We should have the same situation with respect to social media. So we could have notice to users before the content is taken down, an opportunity to appeal. And again, the burden is on the censor to explain why the speech should be taken down. And in the meantime, it stays up because that is our default belief in this country. I'm gonna close with a quote from Learned Hand, which I think should resonate particularly strongly here. Judge Learned Hand said in 1943, another difficult time in our history, he said the First Amendment presupposes that right conclusions are more likely to be gathered out of a multitude of tongues than through any authoritative selection. And to many, this is and always will be folly. But uh, we have staked upon it our all. Social media platforms allow the multitudes to speak in ways they never could before. But the owners of those platforms are engaging in precisely the kind of authoritative selection that Learned Hand warned against, with predictable results. I suspect that Judge Hand would support this motion, and so should you. Thank you, Corinne McSherry. That resolution again, constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. Here is our first debater speaking against the resolution, Nate Persily, professor at Stanford Law. Ladies and gentlemen, Nate Persily. So when I think uh, about what might save social media companies from themselves, I think a little bit maybe about antitrust law, maybe about greater privacy protections. I rarely think that what we need is actually more hate speech more pornography, uh, more bots, more trolls, more foreign interference in election. And that actually is what the First Amendment would require if these social media companies were to apply it. Now, you can love the First Amendment like I do. And I do, in fact, get chills when I walk by Independence Hall and come into this, uh, into this meeting room. Um, but the First Amendment is to restrict government. It's not actually to restrict private companies like Facebook. And actually, if you believe in the First Amendment, you will actually believe that Facebook and other social media companies can apply different rules to the speech that's on their platform. Now, my arguments against this resolution are, are uh, just a few uh, short points. The first is uh, that it's actually naive to think that you can apply the First Amendment in the context of a social media platform. The second is that it's actually undesirable. The third is that it's actually illegal. And the fourth is that it's actually hypocritical. Besides that, I agree with this resolution, okay? <laughs> Uh, so the first is that it's naive. What these social media companies do, the most important power that they do while we focus on all these takedowns and the other types of uh, uh, restrictions that Corinne uh, mentioned, is that they organize information, right? They tell you what goes at the top of your newsfeed and what goes at the bottom, all right? These are inherently content-based decisions, that they decide that some type of content is going to be uh, served to you first and something's gonna go later. Any factor that's in the algorithm that is based on content violates the First Amendment, okay? And these decisions that they are making about, for example, whether they're gonna put engaging content at the top, whether they're going to prioritize disinformation or non-disinformation, whether they are going to put hate speech at the top of your newsfeed, all of these decisions are uh, going to be unconstitutional if they were applied by the government that these products that they are delivering you, as powerful as they are, and as much we, as we should have oversight and government regulation of these platforms, it's not the place for the First Amendment. The second argument is that it's actually undesirable. So let's, let's just take a tour through the First Amendment for a second and First Amendment case law recently to give you a sense of what it would mean if the social media companies were to apply. 
So as Corinne mentioned, yes, there's the possibility that then you would end up having more nudity in your, in your newsfeed. It's much more than that. Virtually all pornography is protected by the First Amendment, right? Because Facebook's not gonna know it when it sees it, right? And so do they actually have an obligation? Does Instagram, which has 13-year-olds on its platform, have an obligation to respect the same constitutional restrictions on pornography that the government does? Similarly, with um, hate speech, it's perfectly well and good. I have a real problem with, with uh, federal or state or even university banned uh, hate speech laws. I think they're overbroad. But does Facebook actually have to decide that just because Nazis are allowed to march in Skokie, that they can march across your newsfeed? Right? These are private companies that have different ideas and different values and different priorities as to what uh, should be coming at you in your social media feeds. In addition, under Citizens United versus FEC, a case familiar to many of you, right? Does Facebook actually have to allow uncontrolled, unlimited corporate political ad spending on their platform? You might think that that is actually protected by the First Amendment, but it doesn't mean that Facebook actually has to allow it on its platform. And you could go on and on, violent video games, right? No prior restraints, which would prevent all algorithmic curation. Or, as Corinne mentioned, the issue of anonymity, right? Can Facebook require that people actually use their real names and, th and that they be uh, uh, sort of open and notorious in their speech? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe the, it's desirable that they keep anonymity and there are plenty of places on the internet that you can be anonymous. But if Facebook is going to try to get at foreign interference in election, hate speech and other kinds of unaccountable speech, it's going to have to force a real names policy as ineffective as it may be in the interim, right, in order to get at this critical problem of anonymity online. The third point is that it's actually illegal for Facebook to do this. We tend to think, look at Facebook through the American lens here, right? That we think that, I mean, how could anybody be against applying American constitutional principles, right, to American audiences? The truth is Facebook is an international platform. And so while Holocaust denial is perfectly protected under the US Constitution, right, and you can say all kinds of things uh, that, that uh, would be abhorrent, you know what, Germany might have a different view on this. Uh, Myanmar, in a condition of civil strife and, and racial hatred that is really a tinderbox, they have different rules when it comes to hate speech. And for an American multinational corporation to then decide that there is one standard, a US constitutional standard that then is gonna apply around the world is a real problem. The last point is that it's actually hypocritical. Like I said, I wanna wrap myself in the First Amendment, okay? Because if you believe in the First Amendment, you actually believe that different social media companies can come up with different rules as to what kind of content should appear on their platform. If you want anarchy, if you want all of the, the, the potential hate speech, pornography and the like, there's plenty of places on the internet for you, okay? Uh, you can go to Gab if you're worried about uh, a censorship of conservatives. You could go to Reddit and, and, and create your own subreddit for a particular issue. You could go to uh, you know, closed email lists and bulletin boards. But also, if you're a social media company that's a little bit worried about what might happen to the community under those circumstances, that maybe it would have an effect, whether it's on elections or whether it's on the users themselves, that then you can make the decision that, you know what, there are gonna be some rules that we don't apply to government, but would be particularly fitted in this case. And so for that reason, please vote that constitutional free speech, free, free, I gotta see, I had a great closing there. Constitutional free speech principles cannot save social media companies from themselves. Thank you, Nate Persily.
A reminder of what's going on. We're halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this resolution. Constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. You've heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third, debating for the resolution, David French, senior writer at National Review. Ladies and gentlemen, David French. So... Thank you very much for having me. Um, I was going to go all good cop and uplifting until your statement, but I'm going to have to rebut some. Go a little bad cop and rebut it. But here's what I'm, I'm used to being a bad cop. I'm used to being a civil rights, civil liberties litigator. I used to brag that, and I think it was true when I used to brag about it, that I have sued more universities on free speech grounds than any living lawyer. And so I'm very used to arguing about how censors mess things up. And if there's one thing that we know and one thing that we have seen over 200 plus years of attempted censorship in the United States of America, it's that censors constantly, consistently mess things up, exacerbate divisions. But I'm not going to dwell on that because, you know, one of the things that we often end up doing is sort of talking about how do we control the negative aspects of free speech? What do we do with what's bad about free speech? I want to talk about what's good about free speech for a moment. So last March, there was uh, an interesting poll uh, that the New York Times reported on. is a poll of college students. And it said to college students, if you had to choose between inclusion and free speech, which would you choose, inclusion or free speech? And a majority of college students chose inclusion. Now, at first, I was mad about this poll. I was like, that's not the choice. That is absolutely not the choice. It's the choice that we tend to think is being made here on social media, that we need to censor people to protect, for example, disadvantaged or historically marginalized communities, that there is some sort of battle between inclusion and free speech, when the reality is exactly the opposite. If what history has shown us is that free speech facilitates inclusion, free speech, free speech facilitates justice, as Frederick Douglass said, free speech, is, free speech is the great moral renovator of society. And you don't have to look anywhere besides the history of the United States of America to see this truth. We often talk about what's bad about free speech. We often talk about the bad things that have occurred. But you know what? We have not lived in a truly free free speech environment in this country for very long. It wasn't until the 1920s that the First Amendment of the United States Constitution actually applied to the actions of state and local governments. A lot of us forget that, that for much of our history, the First Amendment was, didn't apply in states. It suppressed, for example, abolitionist speech before the Civil War. And what has happened in the United States of America? Ask yourself, since free speech has been applied at every level of American government, since the First Amendment has been applied at every level of the American government since the 1920s, are we more free? Are we less free? Is the United States a more inclusive society or is it a less inclusive society? I think if you looked at the state of civil liberties in this country in the 1920s and you compare it to 2019, there is absolutely no comparison. Frederick Douglass's words were accurate and prophetic. Free speech is a great moral renovator. Now that does not mean that free speech doesn't carry with it some negative effects and negative consequences and negative actions. There is such a thing as bad speech. But you know, we, we tend to make fun of college students these days. We call them snowflakes because they don't like to hear bad speech. But you know what? College students have to endure a lot more than the users of social media. 
Why is this? There's something we haven't talked about yet. One thing that every user of social media has the ability to do is block or mute, and that has no problem and no impact on the First Amendment. When I was in law school, there were people who would boo and hiss me when I talked. They didn't like what I had to say. Think how much better they would feel if they'd been able to mute me live. You know, it had gone something like this. I disagree, the establishment clause of I mean, they would be relieved of any obligation to ever hear from me again. You know, that's what a feature that we have in every major social media platform. If you don't like to see speech, you don't have to see it anymore. But so when we're talking about first when we're talking about social media censorship, we're often not talking about protecting your own eyes because you can protect your own eyes in the same way that you can choose not to watch Game of Thrones and miss out on the greatest show in the history of television. <laughs> you can make that choice. I can choose not to follow people on Twitter or more satisfyingly, I can choose to mute them so they're just screaming into the void, not knowing I never see it. I have an ability to curate and manage my own feed. And so when we're talking about sanctioning social media censorship, what we're talking about is enabling me, enabling a panel, enabling a board somewhere, some distance from me, of often incompetent composition, as my debating partner has indicated, to decide not just what I am going to see, because I can decide that, consistent with the First Amendment, but to decide what everyone else will see on the basis of criteria that are broad and that are vague and that the very action of arguing about this facilitates the division that is right now tearing this country apart. The answer traditionally in American history to a bad speech is better speech. In social media, the answer to bad speech can be better speech or it can just be blocking. But what we should not do in these new platforms that span the globe, that dominate much of American political discourse is to unlearn the lesson that we have learned since the incorporation of the Bill of Rights in the 1920s to every state local branch of government. And that is this, the free speech for all of its problems is the great moral renovator of our society and we still have renovation to do. So I would urge you to vote yes on this resolution. Thank you, David French. And that resolution again, constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. Here to make her opening statement against this resolution, Maricha Schake, Dutch politician and member of the European Parliament. Ladies and gentlemen, Maricha Schake. As a student of American studies, it's really quite special to be here in the National Constitutional Center. And part of what I just heard reminded me a little bit of those history lessons that I followed uh, at Amsterdam University when I was trying to understand America, including the First Amendment and the American Constitution. And I can assure you that the First Amendment is the envy of many people in the world. But will it save social media companies from themselves? And that is the question this evening. To that, the resounding answer is no. Because if the First Amendment could save social media companies from themselves, why hasn't it? And why are these companies in so much trouble? Because last time I checked, but you know this better than I do as Americans, the First Amendment does apply in this country. But privacy violations, the illegal collecting and selling of data, the live stream streaming of a gang rape, all happened. And also, if the First Amendment could save 
Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter from themselves. Why would Mark Zuckerberg and other CEOs have to mislead us so much about their company practices? Secondly, I don't think billion-dollar companies need to be saved. I think people do. Free speech protection in this country goes very far. Hear this. Tweet. Hitler was right. Question, what about the Holocaust? Answer, it was made up. Question, what race is the most evil to you? Answer, Mexican and black. Question, do you support genocide? Answer, I do indeed. A person is free to say this under the First Amendment, but the artificial intelligence bot called Tay that Microsoft developed was the one running the Twitter account that I was just quoting with the questions to people's answers, and many, many more. And 10 to 15% of accounts on Twitter are bots, and in other platforms and other countries, these numbers are even higher. Now, rights apply to people and persons, and I will really spare you my thoughts about Citizens United, but clearly a bot does not and should not enjoy the same protection of rights as people's speech does. But the problem is, on social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, you and I cannot tell the difference. Thirdly, the First Amendment is not the only law that applies to people and the protection of their rights online. The right to privacy, data protection standards, intellectual property protection, children's rights, public health, they all require safeguards too. And thankfully, tobacco companies are not protected by the First Amendment if they were to go out and advertise that smoking is the best thing you can do for your health. So why are people and bots alike on social media suggesting that vaccinations will kill children, that methamphetamines are excellent for teenagers if they want to lose weight, or that a better life awaits after taking a suicide pill or after blowing oneself up, taking others along? And lastly, there is not enough oversight over the algorithms that govern social media companies' business models, over the data that they collect and that they sell. And without this oversight, social media companies can make all kinds of lofty claims about how they're going to filter out fake news or how they're going to avoid the posting of copyright-violating um, messages. But whether and how this is done, this filtering out of harmful content, while respecting the First Amendment, and we've just heard how important that is, it is entirely unknown how these algorithms are working. So, concluding, while I believe that the First Amendment is crucially important, it is not at all enough to save social media companies from themselves, from doing harm to children, to people, our societies, and the world. Tech companies do not distinguish between expression of a person and a bot, and they actively want to avoid oversight. I say this to you as a serving member of European Parliament who's been on the receiving end of lobby effort after lobby effort. These tech companies are allergic to regulation. Now, for the social media companies to save themselves, I believe they have to put people over profit. Oh, and let me just stress this before uh, I really end, especially being the only non-American on the panel this evening. It is very important to remember that social media companies reach people 
all over the world. So that looking at American law, for American people only, is always going to fall short. So I ask you to vote against the motion. Thank you, Mirta Shake. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from me and from you, members of our live audience here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. The resolution, Constitutional Free Speech Principles Can Save Social Media Companies from Themselves. The two debaters arguing against this resolution, Corinne McSherry and David French, are, are making the assertion that at present, the system being used by these companies is fundamentally broken. There are arguments in support of using, uh, being inspired by First Amendment principles are both pragmatic and philosophical. At the philosophical end, they argue that free speech, even though they concede there's an awful lot of awful stuff happening out on social media, that free speech in the long, long run tends to benefit society. It is the great moral renovator, they call it. Um, they also say that efforts being made already by these companies to limit speech are proving that it, it can't really be done in an effective way, that there are ridiculous and wrong-headed unintended consequences, and they uh, cited numbers of them. And as a, at the bottom, bottom line, they also say that the First Amendment guarantees a system where the burden is on the censor to prove that the speech is not, uh, is not valid and should be taken down or otherwise limited. The team arguing against the resolution, uh, Maricha Shaka and Nate Persley, are arguing that, first of all, they are very pro-First Amendment. Uh, they are adamant about that, referring to it as the envy of the world, but as an inspiration for guiding these companies in forming their own policies. They say that doing so would be naive and undesirable and actually illegal, citing the example of countries like Germany, which have their own rules on this. In Germany, Holocaust denial is actually illegal in the United States under the First Amendment. It is not illegal to do that. How would that work? They talk about the fact that a number of the social media accounts, 10 to 15 percent in some places, are actually bots. Do bots have uh, rights of, of free speech or not? Uh, and basically, they say the First Amendment uh, on its own is not enough to save these companies from themselves. And it's misguided to take American principles and try to apply them globally around the world. I want to go to the team arguing against the resolution. Uh, you're saying that constant Constitutional free speech principles will not save social media companies from themselves. I noticed that your opponents used the C word a number of times, censor and censorship. It's a pejorative word, I think, in this context. They're calling your, they're, they're saying that you're basically arguing for censorship. Nate, personally, are you pro-censorship? No, I'm not pro-censorship. Um, so what's the difference? But the, the problem, again, is that you have no choice here. All right, what the social media companies are doing is organizing information for you, right? They, make a they have to make some decision as to what goes at the top and what goes at the bottom. That in and of itself, right, if it's done by the government, is going to violate the First Amendment. So you can call it censorship, right, but it's essentially what the platform is, which is that it's curating and delivering information to you, right? And so it, 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 there's certainly the case that there are, you know, there are a parade of horribles on the other side, right, that, that you know, you could, and, and Corinne mentioned many of them, that they could uh, be over-inclusive in their content. But the slope is slippery in both directions, okay? And so all of us are going to dig our heels in on some part of that slope. We're not gonna say that um, the, you know, Facebook has to allow everything onto the platform, right? The question is, is it the First Amendment? And I've given you 
the whole sort of array of First Amendment cases that would constrain Facebook, whether it's Citizens United, whether it's the ban on am or the prevention of a ban on anonymity and the like, all of those things are uh, then going to apply to Facebook, and they really wouldn't be able to uh, right. regulate the platform. Corinne McSherry, uh, you did use the censorship word, and your opponents are saying, I think the response was, you can call that if you want, but it's not really the point here. So can you take that? To take on that response? Sure, absolutely. So I think what we call it is, is private censorship. I mean, the tr traditional way of thinking about censorship is censorship by governments, and, and this is different from that. But I would posit that it's in some ways, given how important social media platforms are right now, the decisions that are being made by a few corporations in Silicon Valley are having as much effect on online speech uh, and the future of online speech as anything any government is doing at the moment. Although I would flag that, by the way, governments often participate in these takedown decisions. Governments take advantage of community standards policies to force content offline that they could never do officially, but they do it via a community standards What's flag. What's an, an example of that? Um, well, so one thing that's happening is that, um, as I understand it, the government of France is embedding, is either France or Germany is embedding someone at Facebook to help them make decisions about what content should stay up and stay down. We also get a lot of sort of quiet reports from companies where they don't want to admit publicly that this is what's happening, but it nevertheless is what is happening. Let me ask Maricha Shaki, is that problematic that an official of the government of France is taking part in the conversations at Facebook about what to take up or take down? Well, I think there should be an independent assessment of whether a takedown is appropriate or not based on the law. But what we see now is indeed that these private companies also for their own business decisions are taking down content for a variety of reasons. So while the First Amendment, at least in this country, and you know, you mentioned France, but let's, I'm going to try to stay focused on, on the area where these companies are incorporated and where the First Amendment applies. They are themselves not respecting it. So how is, how is the First Amendment going to save these companies from themselves if they've had all the opportunity in the world to actually live by the Constitution and make the law leading? They haven't. So I just don't think it's going to save social media companies from themselves. You said, you said earlier that the First Amendment is not enough. What else That's is needed? Right. What is needed then? What is your, what, what is your vision for well, the solution? Well, I believe one of the main challenges that we face both in Europe and in the United States is that currently the social media companies, the platforms specifically, they enjoy an exception of liability. And this is, uh, in our law, part of the e-commerce directive. I think it is your section 230 for the uh, lawyers in the room. But it basically means that they are claiming under this law that they are a neutral platform. They're simply just connecting a well, to Like the phone company w would be, Like the example. phone company or like eBay, you know? What, does eBay know that a sold car is being, a uh, stolen car is being sold, for example? No, it would say we're not liable for that. We're simply uh, connecting the, the seller and the buyer. So this exemption has, has gone, I think, uh, very, very far. And it is at friction with all kinds of business decisions, uh, the, the ranking that uh, uh, Professor Persili talked about, but also the takedowns that these companies do. So it is way too narrow to look at the problem that social media companies present only through the First Amendment lens. That is the problem. And then there's also the right to privacy, which has long been seen in the United States as a European sensitivity. And I think we are right to be sensitive about it, looking at our history. But I see a, a big awakening in the United States that privacy 
should be worth something. And so we have to look at the broad spectrum to understand what the threats are that these social media companies... Okay, let me bring in David French. So let me lodge a really strong objection to the characterization of the world that the First Amendment creates, okay? I feel like we're creating a a bit of a straw man that says the First Amendment world is anything goes at any time, no matter how awful and horrible. But we have 200 years of jurisprudence in the United States of America that has established, and there are multiple situations where there are categories of conduct and behavior that are not protected by the First Amendment, such as targeted harassment, such as libel and slander, defamation. Uh, we have viewpoint neutral decency rules that govern the airwaves that are constitutional to prevent children from seeing pornography on broadcast television. So when we're talking about the First Amendment, we're not talking about a straw man First Amendment here. We're talking about the world we understand and experience, a world that protects people from harassment, that protects people from invasion of privacy, that protects people from libel, slander, and defamation. The cardinal virtue of the Second Amendment is not anything goes, no matter how much of a nightmare it is, it is viewpoint neutrality. It is that the government is not discriminating amongst viewpoints to determine which viewpoints are gonna be privileged and which viewpoints are gonna be suppressed. That's the cardinal rule of the First Amendment. There are time, place, and manner restrictions, there are anti-harassment regulations, but viewpoint neutrality is a cardinal rule and that's what the social media companies struggle with so darn much. It took a village of people at Facebook, according to a recent Vanity Fair article, to decide whether Feminists could argue, quote, men are scum. Okay, I'll tell you, I don't care. If they want to say men are scum, I might either engage or I might block them. But the idea that we're going to trust to Silicon Valley executives, the determination of how feminists make their case, is I believe that is what is repugnant to the First Amendment. Men are scum. I wonder if we're going to debate that at some point. <laughs> Resolved. Nate, personally, I, I, wanted, I want to pick up from the point that, uh, that your opponent just well, I made. So much. Sorry? <laughs> Go ahead. You want to be in that debate, is I'm, that what you're saying? Yeah, no, I have a lot of <laughs> You're signing up already? Um, Nate, I want to pick up the point that, that David is elaborating on the, on, on the way that they're describing what they mean by the First Amendment, and, and, and he's basically making the point that the First Amendment just doesn't mean anything goes because you can, under the First Amendment, you can still sue somebody from libel, you can, still, mm -hmm. you can jail somebody for inciting violence, you can jail somebody for harassment, for harassment uh, et cetera. So it's not, it's not anything goes, at, but the, the core point they're saying is this notion of viewpoint neutrality, that the First Amendment can't tell anybody that their views, their political views, their religious views, their ideological views are, don't have a place. Can you respond to that? Because, because in fact, is Facebook not in the position, as if it tries to govern its space, to be telling people certain views are, don't have a place there? So, you know, the, the strategy that I think they're taking is to narrow the First Amendment to basically 10% of First Amendment. No, to the actual First Amendment. Well, no, take, <laughs> let, let's just talk about anonymity because that, that I, I think, really kind of crystallizes the issue, right? This is an area where the government has to respect anonymous speech. In fact, the Federalist Papers, right, written not too far from here, had Publius as the author, right? We have a proud tradition of anonymous speech. It is right for the government to respect anonymity, but it's anonymity which gives us the bot problem that Marichka talked about. It gives us the foreign interference in elections problem. It gives us the unaccountable and hate speech problem online, okay? Now, again, you can clothe yourselves, as I'm trying to do, in the First Amendment and say that this should be the restriction on government. And, in fact, that social media companies, if they want to let everything go, 
They can, or just to adopt the First Amendment, they could. But the point is, different. what the First Amendment provides, right, is that each one of these companies, if they want to decide that, hey, we're going to have a different type of environment on our platform. We're not going to allow foreign interference in elections because we're worried about what the impact is going to be. We're not going to allow sort of sexualizing of children and the like. By the way, this is a really, and if I, if I could, just to give you a, a real concrete example that I just learned about Reddit. Reddit, which is one of the most libertarian, anything goes kinds of uh, platforms has adopted a rule, it's not about child pornography, it's about, you know what, on our platform you can't sexualize children because what they found was that there were these, these uh, communities that were developing on Reddit where they were perfectly sort of legal photos but then the way people were talking about it, right, was really, really scary, right? And to be honest, if a platform wants to allow that kind of uh, speech, they have the right to, but they also have the right to make a decision that that's not appropriate on the platform. I want to take a question to Corinne. We've been talking about offensive speech for the most part, but there's another thing that's out there, and that's this thing called fake news that became very, very prevalent and problematic since 2016, and actually before that. And, and it's the, and I mean real fake news. Well, I, I can't believe I'm saying real fake news. <laughs> Story, stories that are put out there that are, are by, whose authors are knowingly aware that the information is false. Not, not the news that you don't like, but the stuff that's false. How does the First Amendment issue work into that? We're not talking, you know, is that content neutrality come into play there? Well, I think that the best way to approach, well, there's actually a lot of people who are trying to do research right now to figure out what's the best way to get at the fake news problem. It is not obvious to me that asking Silicon Valley to solve it for us is the right path forward any more than asking Silicon Valley to solve any many, many other problems that we have. Just if you let me digress just for a second, I noticed that Pinterest is now um, taking down content that's part of this sort of anti-vaccination movement. It seems to me that if you're worried about parents not vaccinating their children, maybe you shouldn't look to Pinterest to fix that problem for you. Maybe there are more effective ways of getting at that issue. And I feel the same way about a lot of the concerns that we have around protecting our elections. If we're worried about protecting democracy and protecting elections, maybe we should be thinking about things like, I don't know, gerrymandering or any number of millions of other things that are affecting our elections and perhaps focus a little bit less on this one symptom that we think maybe we can get at by calling Mark Zuckerberg on the carpet and asking him to do more and double down on what is already a completely failed system. I'd like to go to the audience for some questions now. And the way that will work, if you raise your hand, a microphone will be brought to you. And I would ask you to stand up and tell us at least your first name and then ask your question. Does anybody have uh, anything to go with? Okay, right down front row here. Again, uh, it's coming this way. And if you could stand up, that would be great. David Harrison, it, it seems to me the problem is one, the huge mass of information that you have with the social media. Newspapers or radio are traditional forms of information had a limited pool that they could pull from. Certainly they were commercial and, and maybe slanted the news, but there was one responsibility and two, there just was enough that they could pick and choose because that's all they could publish. Here. I don't understand really how even Zuckerberg or any of the major platforms can actually yeah. ch pick and choose, and so, I'd like you to talk about that because it is so vast. Let me bring that so, question to the, to so the it side. So it becomes almost an impossible 
Either way, it's let, impossible. Let me bring that question to the side arguing against the resolution because it also picks up on something Corinne uh, McSherry said at the beginning, which is that it's kind of impossible to do. There's just so much out there uh, that you, you couldn't possibly keep up with, with everything that's needed. And, and, and to make the judgment calls, being able to read, uh, first of all, intent and, and outcome and consequences. So t take that on, Marisha. How do you, sure. if, you if, if these companies are going to make these choices, how do they do it? and well, do it well. We need much more scrutiny on what the companies are doing already. Um, but, once, but say you have that, how does it work? I mean, is there, is there an army of 100,000 people checking? Is it algorithms? How does it actually happen? Call me a pacifist, but I don't like to think about armies. Um, Legions. I think oh, it's, it's military also. Teams. Mob, a mob, Boards. fact checkers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but one of the main selectors uh, of what information comes first, this was the gentleman's question as well, and what, what information shoots to the top or goes down to the bottom is determined by algorithms. These algorithms are extremely influential. Uh, I'm, I'm the daughter and the sister of a doctor and I, I recently saw a sign that I thought was very uh, clear in explaining this, which was in a doctor's office saying, please don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. <laughs> And unfortunately, the consequences of these searches are, are actually not that funny. There are people who think that by drinking olive oil or doing some kind of rain dance can be cured from cancer, even though they are very, very ill. So I believe that the way in which information is ranked and the deeper impact on our democracy, uh, on our, our uh, rights, constitutional rights, universal human rights, needs to be scrutinized much more. So but we need oversight over the algorithms in order to even know what the decisions are that they're making okay. uh, and whether the intended and unintended consequences are not causing unacceptable harm. So, so part of your answer then is, is the algorithms need to be Fine-tuned and, and, watched, and watched over. And, yes. and somebody needs to be doing the oversight. Okay. Like a regulator. That, let me take that to your point. Like a regulator. Mm -hmm. uh, Corinne, to respond. I think more transparency would be fantastic. I could not agree more. Um, but I don't think it changes the outcome of, uh, of this. What I do think, what I would say is that rather than in answer to your, to your concern, um, one of the things that was great about the internet was that we didn't have so many gatekeepers. And that was actually very important and continues to be really important that you don't have just a few gatekeepers making decisions about what you do and do not see. But picking up on what David said, maybe part of the answer is to ask the social media companies that do have more money than God um, to take some of that and rather than investing in an army or a mob or whatever of content moderators um, that are then going to be psychologically damaged, take that energy and invest it in user tools, in empowering the users to control their own internet experience rather than taking that power unto themselves. Another question? Right back there. And Mike will come up to you, and if you could stand up, please. So my question could, is... Could, could, would you mind standing? Oh, thanks. Just so we can see with the camera. Appreciate it. So my question is for the pro side. So it seems that... Corin, you say it? Corin. Corin, sorry. So you talked about um, effects of social media on elections, and then you talked about there's like a million... I think the term you used was a million other things, gerrymandering, what have you. So it seems that you disagree with your opposition in regards to the effects that social media has on the democratic process. It seems that they're trying to maximize and you're trying to minimize it. So I guess I just formally ask, to what extent do you think social media has an impact on the democratic process and the way people cast their ballots? Can I ask you to rephrase your question to make it more on the point and ask each side to, to take on this. Does their vision of the way things want to, uh, should go 
actually enhance or, or, or diminish democracy. So would you say that the First Amendment approach you're suggesting would be an enhancement to democracy, and why? Oh, I think it's an enhancement to democracy for a couple of... Are you good with my rephrasing your question that way? Thank you. <laughs> Thumbs up. Thank you. I think it's an enhancement to democracy for a couple of reasons. Uh, now, I'm, I'm, I will say and I will acknowledge that social media is a divided place. America is a divided place. It was getting very divided before social media. It's continuing to be divided. But the, the fundamental reality is that censorship itself is extraordinarily divisive. Censorship itself generates intense disagreement. Censorship itself can also even generate violence. The, the, the problem is when we talk about the dichotomy, the, the negative effects of free speech, and there's bad political, there's been bad political free speech forever. I mean, we act as if um, bad political speech is created, uh, is just now creating problems. I mean, they made a musical about a vice president shooting a former secretary of the treasury in a duel. I mean, this is, this is something that's been going on for a long time. And the answer is to empower the user, the speaker. It is not to turn to Silicon Valley and say, save me from fake news. It is not to turn to Silicon Valley and say, save my delicate eyes when I can click a button and save my eyes myself. This is one of the fundamental problems. When we say turn to Silicon Valley and we say, save me, what we almost always mean is punish them. That's what we tend to mean. Right, We're looking to somebody else to fight our political battle for us, and that is not Silicon Valley's place. So um, I, I, rather than responding directly to what was just <laughs> said, I want you to respond to the question. Right. The question is the, the vision as you lay it out where these companies would be making more of these choices that your opponents find offensive, would that be an enhancement or a diminishment of democracy? Again, they make these choices no matter what. But what's okay. the answer to the question? No, well, the, the answer is that... It's irrelevant, um, are you saying? No, that, the first, that they cannot respect the First Amendment in the way that uh, they're proposing here because they are making content-based decisions. I think the nature of the question is if we're in a world where Facebook is saying you can't, you, you, you can't uh, be a Holocaust denier uh, on, our, on our site or you're off, you can't be offensive against certain minority groups or you're off, is that an enhancement to the dem democracy or uh, diminishing democracy? Well, it's important to understand that there's more than just the American democracy at stake here, right? There are different democracies around the world that have different values. And so, you know, it, I, my personal view is, look, I do take a more libertarian approach for what I want to see on my feed. But you know what? I go and I, I go into those dark corners of the internet and I see what people are saying. But you have that right. All this user uh, uh, power that he's talking about, you have that right right now. You okay, if, 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 on Facebook if, if the law on. in Egypt tells Facebook that, that they have to shut down a particular guy's talking yeah. that the government doesn't like, does Facebook go along with that? And is that an enhancement to democracy? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And that it is an extremely difficult uh, decision for them, right? So Holocaust denial, right? They will, they will take down. Actually, in Egypt, they wouldn't. Uh, and they're, I mean, this is, uh, you know, they have uh, really difficult choices that they have to make in different situations. But, I think the example of Egypt is, is a very important one because this is not about what social media companies are doing and not doing only. This is about the rights that protect people and people in countries where the rule of law does not apply are not protected yet. They are subject to all kinds of information that's being shared. Now, I believe very much that sharing more information and having more freedoms is is good for democracy, but we should not confuse those rights with the behavior of those companies. And I feel like that is, is not clear enough uh, in the arguments that the other team are making. I would like to see how 
social media companies are then actually applying the First Amendment besides the point that people might be empowered because I personally don't think we can put all the responsibility to understand the terms of use of all these tech platforms that would take hours if not days to read for non-lawyers, 16-year-old children, my 80-year-old uh, neighbor alike. I mean, do you understand what you're saying yes to? So, so the fact that your opponents are arguing that in certain countries what you're talking about just can't fly because uh, they have different um, tolerance for, for free speech. What do you do about that? Well, you know, look, the default position of an American company, a social media platform that is seeking and is its purpose, its founding purpose of these companies are to provide platforms for people's expression. No, it's that, still this, is, this is... <laughs> part of the founding purpose of many of these, or of these organizations, that should be their default position. Now, if a law and another, and another country is prohibiting them from uh, following this platform, then they have a choice to make. Do they comply with the law or do they pull out from that country? And we're casting a lot of these laws, guys, as if these laws are all really, the, all the laws out there are laws against hol Holocaust denial. No, no, if you're operating in China, if you're operating in many other countries, uh, the laws are suppressing dissent in a, a truly authoritarian and brutal way. And so some of these com companies need to make hard choices and say, that's just, you know, the buck is not, is not compatible with the purpose of this platform and pull out. And so that we, we are continually casting censorship. I feel like my worthy opponents here are casting censorship as this beneficially and well-intentioned move internationally censorship is not the same thing as like a bunch of administrators at brown or dartmouth trying to figure out a way to make their universities more welcoming internationally censorship is more often than not a bunch of authoritarian thugs trying to make sure that they retain a decades or generations long hold on power so let's not sugarcoat what this is here and i believe silicon valley if it is going to advocate and if it's going to be a part of uh, trying to foster and cultivate a healthy democracy needs to think long and hard before it's going to operate in some of these countries. Well, very quickly. But just quickly, because they already do, we need to think more about what freedom after speech really means in these countries. What about being incentivized to share all kinds of political opinions on a platform like Facebook, like young people in Syria, Egypt, Turkey do? And then they're on the record. Great because their rights are not protected in those countries. So it is an illusion to think that this is about the companies. It is about the laws in these other countries. And I truly think, and this is, this is really beyond sort of the, the resolution that we're discussing, that American companies and pa possibly also the American people do not appreciate sufficiently what the impact is of these con company models in countries where human rights are not protected and people can be dragged to prisons, tortured or killed. But either way, should they be making the decision, do you want Mark Zuckerberg to decide for a Syrian journalist whether she is going to take the risk of putting that video online? I don't want Mark Zuckerberg deciding that, I want the journalist deciding it for herself. Of course. She can take that risk. I'm gonna well, take one more question. No. <laughs> Jared Gilbert, uh, if uh, the logical conclusion to your premise uh, for the debate is that the Supreme Court ultimately virtually decides to mandate free speech for the plat social platforms. Isn't that consequentially an, an, an invitation to those same platforms to have immunity against any kind of civil action that is brought by individuals? 
Yeah. And they lose an, an actual right they have now, they possibly but I, lose. I don't think you're arguing. No. no. I don't think they're arguing for the Supreme Court to mandate. Well, isn't it the logical conclusion of no, that No, 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 no. We're arguing that the company should choose. I'm going to try one more, should squeeze choose. in one more question. Uh, there was one in the back there. Sorry. Sir, if you could stand up, they can see uh, where you're at. Thank you. Uh, something struck me that one of, the, uh, one of the speakers just said, and that was the purpose of the existence of these companies. Is to sell ads. I heard that too. <laughs> I heard that too. These companies are not there to spread democracy. They're not there to spread truth. They're not there to spread justice. And they're not there just for people posting selfies of them doing since bad we're close things. to since we're close to out of time let me, I, I want to take I'll, your point to this side because right, I well, think it's me, a challenge to them let me make the point I, I need and you to make point, one one sentence question if you can I know it's yes tough, but. the point is this would you not agree the purpose of these companies is to collect data on users both up front and surreptitiously to sell advertising to sell products and to okay. take that data and sell it other places have these companies not made that clear? They are not okay. news organizations. I'm, I'm going I'm okay. to break, I'm gonna break in to, to relate the question to our resolution, which is this guy's saying baloney when you say these companies are there in any way to advance democracy and free speech and interconnectedness. They are there to make money. So I want to speak directly to that point because I think that speaks to the irony of this whole proposition. We, let's take it as, as a given that we don't trust... Facebook or all, any of these other companies very much, right? Maybe about as far as we can throw them. Why? Why in the world then do we nonetheless trust them to make good content moderation decisions? Why would we put those things together? Of course we don't trust them either way, which is why we have to ask them to adhere to a higher standard and demand it. Ten second response from the other side? Should we trust these companies to do it? Sounds like you don't necessarily. No, no, think no. So. I, you know we're here to uh, bury Facebook, not to praise it. You know, right. I, mean, it, it, it <laughs> I think you don't, you don't uh, have to. You don't have to. I, th uh, I have to say that concludes round yeah. two of this <laughs> Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is: Constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. Now we move on to round three, and round three will be brief closing statements from each debater in turn. Once again, the resolution, constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. Speaking for, and you would go to the lectern for this, speak, making her closing statement, Corinne McSherry. Uh, Corinne, before I introduce you, there's something I needed to record uh, that I didn't in the last section, and I just want to do it. And... Um, This, is, well, this will be the perfect chance. And I'm going to say that we're in the middle of the question and answer section. You know that we aren't. So you have to pretend that you're, please don't laugh. So I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this resolution, constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. Thank you for your patience. Now I want to introduce Corinne. Speaking, making her closing statement in support of the motion here is Corinne McSherry, legal director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Thank you. My job at the Electronic Frontier Foundation is to fight for your digital rights, and there's a reason I do that job, and that's because I'm still a little bit of an idealist about the internet. Now, I know that a free and open internet well, it's never been fully free and it's never been fully open. And so that's an ongoing project. But 
still, the internet represents an extraordinary, extraordinary idea that anyone with a computing device can connect to anyone else around the world to speak, to be heard, and to learn. Private censorship is fundamentally incompatible with that idea. But if the social media platforms are going to insist on putting themselves in the role of judge and jury, drawing lines between what speech is okay and what speech is not, then it seems to me that at the very least they could be looking to the work of judges who have struggled for years to figure out exactly, to, to draw those lines for themselves and for the nation. Again, what we are saying here is they should look to First Amendment principles to guide their conduct. My opponents had said, I wish that they would apply the First Amendment. They never have. Well, exactly. Maybe they should start. Maybe they should start. Maybe they should make that choice. Just a few months ago, in the Packingham case, the Supreme Court observed that social media can provide the most powerful mechanism available to a private citizen to make his or her voice heard. That's extraordinary. Now, we're here in the Constitution Center, a very special place. It seems to me that in this place, in the center devoted to constitutional principles, it would be very strange for us to decide that powerful corporations shouldn't respect those principles when they're deciding whose voices will be heard and what those voices can say. I urge you to support the motion. Thank you, Corinne McSherry. And that motion again, constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. Here making his closing against the resolution, Nate Persily, professor at Stanford Law. So an old law professor once said that uh, when the facts are on your side, you pound the facts. When the law is on your side, you pound the law. When neither is on your side, you pound the table, right? <laughs> I kind of think that our opponents are pounding the table here a little bit, right? to bring up the specter of China, to bring up the specter of these censors as if that is what we are arguing for is really misrepresenting the argument, okay? The facts and the law are on our side. So if you look at the facts of what is happening out there, the internet is this incredible uh, liberating technology that allows people to talk to anyone around the world, right? It also has these deep, dark spaces. You can choose what space you want to be in. The question is, should these companies be serving up this kind of information to you um, at the top of your news feed, at the top of your Twitter feed, and the like? Now, again, you can choose to, to uh, go into Gab. You can choose to go into Twitter. David French is wrong that each one of these platforms has said what they're about is providing free speech opportunities for every uh, person around the world and the like. That actually is Twitter's uh, principled position, that they are trying to allow individuals to broadcast uh, everywhere around the world. And you know what? For that reason, they have an anonymity policy. They have 10 to 15 percent of the accounts are bots and the like. Facebook actually has a different mission. So does Google, right? These companies, they decide, you know what? We're going to build transnational safe communities and the like, something along those lines. Um, now, it's not as if the resolution forces us in the position of saying, yes, Mark Zuckerberg should censor Republicans, right? That's not what we're arguing here. We are simply saying that the same rules that apply to governments are not the rules that should apply to platforms. And so that's why I focused in the rebuttal on anonymity, right? We all agree that anonymity is constitutionally protected. 
But if you are going to get at any of the problems that we all agree are happening online, whether it's foreign election interference, hate speech, right, bots that are, that are essentially polluting the marketplace of ideas, you cannot respect the constitutional right of anonymity in online conversations. The final point, and one that Maricha, I think, made very well, which is that you cannot just think of these as American platforms with an American audience. 80% of Facebook users are outside the United States. It's wrong for this company to then export its value values to the rest of the world. Thank you, Nate Persley. Resolution one more time. Constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. Making his closing for the resolution, David French, senior writer at National Review. So let's be really clear here. My worthy opponent said he came to bury these companies, not to praise them. It is a very odd method of burying them to grant them greater power over your speech to grant them greater authority over the reach of your words. We're talking about companies that in many ways have demonstrated their untrustworthiness, not just with your privacy, but with your voice. That is not burying a company. That is empowering a company. If you vote no on this resolution, if you vote no on this resolution, you're voting yes to a committee somewhere. No, that's best case, real world. You're voting yes to a person who's in a cubicle somewhere halfway across the country, looking at pictures and deciding with a click of a mouse, yes, no, yes, no, after a PowerPoint training and community standards, who's maybe seen enough weird stuff that they're now a flat earther. That was actually a report recently. Some of these content moderators are now flat earthers and 9-11 truthers, and they're deciding whether you get to speak. No, no. The bottom line is the person who decides whether you speak or not should be you. You, do, you have the power to see what you wanna see on social media. You should also have the power to say what you wanna say on social media. And if you don't like what's out there, the answer is to mute, the answer is to block, or God forbid, shut down the app or put down the phone. Now, I, I can't do that as a journalist. I'm just hopelessly addicted. Uh, but that is something that you have in your power. The last thing that you should do when troubled by speech is to turn to Silicon Valley and say, help me, Mark Zuckerberg. You're our only hope. And that's why you should vote for viewpoint neutrality and say yes to this motion. Thank you, David French. The resolution again, constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. Our final speaker will be speaking against the resolution, Maricha Schake, Dutch politician and member of the European Parliament. So I think from everything we've heard from both sides, it is safe to conclude that technology is not neutral. And that no one wants censorship, at least not here in either one of the teams, or that a minister of truth, so to say, would be a very bad idea. And I appreciate your concerns about that even more with a president who calls out journalists as being of the fake news media on a daily basis. But there are many places in the world where we should be very concerned about the notion of a minister of truth. So then why would we effectively, effectively accept that someone like Mark Zuckerberg, but the other CEOs of the other social media companies 
are in a position of power to operate with their business models like ministers of truth. And this is far beyond free speech and the First Amendment. We're talking about the collection of data, the selling of data, the micro-targeting of people with ads to categories such as fans or interested in Joseph Goebbels or having searched for information about depression and suicide. So what I find baffling and unacceptable is that these companies on the one hand have made billions and billions of dollars by perfecting the targeting of ads to people on the basis of ever more precise categories. And yet they claim, how can we be part of preventing conspiracies and all kinds of lies that jeopardize the public health, for example, to go from spreading around or child pornography for that matter. The reason why they do not want to engage in this is that it would make them liable. And if they would be liable, their entire business uh, would, be, would be over. And the idea that uh, it should be all the responsibility of the individual, anyone from you all to decide what you want to see, what you want to engage in, what you don't want to engage in, to what we heard, it's the responsibility of a Syrian journalist to want to engage or not. I believe that people are not informed enough currently to know what they're saying yes to. And in fact, these companies have violated agreements by selling and collecting data uh, invisibly all the time. So I think it is safe to say that people don't know enough to make informed decisions, that this is not only about free speech and the First Amendment, but about much more, and that certainly we can conclude that the First Amendment cannot save social media companies from themselves. So I urge you to vote against the motion. Thank you, Mary Chishake. And that concludes our closing statements and round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now it's time to learn which side our audience here in Philadelphia feels has been most persuasive. We're going to ask you again to go to your mobile phone and go to the iq2us.org forward slash URL. Vote to cast your second vote. And instructions are right there on the screens and also in your programs. Uh, while you're doing that, um, first thing I want to say is... Uh, uh, every time we've come here to the National Constitution Center, we've had a great time, first of all, just in working with the team, uh, but secondly, in terms of the content that unfolds on the stage because of the framework of constitutional issues through which we run these policy questions. It's been a pleasure uh, to be on this stage again, and I just want to thank one more time Jeff Rosen and everybody at the National Constitution Center. Thank you very, very much for having us. Uh, the second thing I want to do is I want to thank everybody who got up and asked a question. It takes a lot of guts to do it, and I want to thank you. Even if I worked a little bit with you to reshape the questions to land it in terms of the resolution we were doing, you were all cooperative, and I want to thank you for that. And the gentleman whose question I passed on, I actually want to circle back to that in just a moment, and I'll show how. But before I do that, I want to, uh, I want to thank our debaters. The thing that we like to do is to show that two sides can disagree uh, with respect, uh, with facts, with argument, with logic, with humor, with charm. Um, uh, it doesn't have to be nasty and sarcastic and put down. You did nothing like that. You were all professionals. You were all really, really interesting, and you all showed respect for what we're doing here. So I want to thank you for doing all of that. Um, so uh, what I do want to do, I, I, I want to take the, sometimes when we have a little bit of time while we're tabulating the results, we like to have a little bit of a chat that's not part of the competition. This is not competitive. But um, the, the question that, that came up about ultimately would the Supreme Court, w w is there a logical 
conclusion to your argument that the Supreme Court someday would be uh, telling these companies what they can and can't do, and I, I understand that that wasn't the thrust of your argument, but I, I do want to bounce off of that to the question of, you know, we're heading into the 2020 elections here in this country, and this is an American-focused question, but actually we would really like an international perspective on it. Uh, we're in a world where these companies are under enormous pressure to do something about the mess. Everybody agrees that it's a mess, but what, what do you think um, what do you anticipate in terms of regulations actually being imposed by governments abroad and especially here on these companies because of concerns about the last election being repeated this time around? And Nate, I'll start with you because you're, you're nodding as though you, you're thinking about this. Already. Yeah, well, I think one of the problems, I am worried about um, because the social media companies have dropped the ball on getting at some of uh, issues like foreign interference, that then the governments are going to overreach, right, and really have uh, an impact on free speech online. And we are seeing that around the world, uh, where that the governments are then saying, well, all right, Facebook isn't able to clean up its mess, so therefore uh, they're going to pass real, whether it's viewpoint-based discrimination or, or something else like that. So I am concerned about that. Um, uh, you know, th at the risk of getting too complicated here, all the different areas of law that regulate the internet intersect with each other. So whether you're talking about antitrust, you're talking about privacy, or if you're talking about these content moderation issues, um, I actually think Europe may be the tail that wags the American dog here uh, a little bit, and so uh, the decisions that Marichka makes is gonna be very important. So. What are those decisions, Marichka? <laughs> Where well, are you going with this? Yeah. Well, we all... <laughs> We also have elections and the concerns are actually very, very similar. And what we see is that a number of these social media companies are now coming out with some initial measures of, for example, making transparent who is buying political ads. Well, hallelujah. <laughs> you know, that should not be rocket science, frankly. I mean, if you want to put, put an ad in a newspaper, it should be identifiable as an ad, not as a, as a report. And if it's a political message, I believe, especially also here in the US, you get some kind of notification that this is uh, approved by, I don't know, the super PAC of whichever side. Um, and so this kind of transparency, I believe, is a first step, but it doesn't even begin to touch on the impact of the business models and the algorithms that I mentioned earlier that uh, we don't know enough about. Mm -hmm. So I believe algorithmic accountability will be coming, and I also believe that this uh, exemption from liability that I briefly uh, mentioned to you is going to come under a lot of pressure in both the US and the EU because it simply doesn't add up anymore. Okay, and take it to the other side. Uh, what do you see coming down the road in terms of potential regulation? Uh, Corinne, do you want to go first? Well, so a couple of things. One thing I see most immediately is that um, a bunch of the major companies desperate to avoid regulation um, are going to be ever more aggressive in their content moderation in the hopes that somehow th that will stave off the regulators. And I think that effort's going to fail. Um, but nonetheless, that's what we're going to see, see immediately. What I would like to see, or what, one of the things I worry about, is that we're going to have regulations proposed here um, and abroad that are gonna backfire in the sense, not just that they might be too heavy handed and, and shut down certain kinds of speech, but also that may be difficult to comply with. And what that's gonna mean is that only the big companies like Facebook, like Google, um, can afford to comply with whatever the, the new regulations are and put in place all the you know filtering mechanisms or whatever that they have to. And that means we're going to be stuck with only Facebook and Google, um, you know, for time immemorial. Like, I want the next Google, I want the next Pinterest, I want the next YouTube, I want all, you know, a thousand flowers to bloom so that people can really choose between more and less moderated forums. But you can only do that if you actually have those choices out there. David? 
Yeah, I, you know, I think the, govern, the, the danger of government overreach is, is very big. And, but I think that one of the problems that we have here is that social media has put human nature on blast. So we are able to see our, our fellow citizens' political perspective more readily and easily than we ever have in the past. And a shocking number of people are, are find it compelling that there's, when they see a meme of Jesus arm wrestling Satan, or when they see a news story that if you're somebody who's closely and in, in, uh, carefully engaged with the process, seems to you to be facially ridiculous, that they find extremely compelling. And what this has done is exposed a massive problem we have in this country on two fronts, polarization and civic ignorance. And so social media is not gonna fix that. And we keep trying to look to social media to say, do something about all the crappy memes. You know, do something about this ridiculous news story. But the problem here is us more broadly. It's the failure of civic education. It's the rise of contempt and hate. All of these things that long predated social media. And that's why, you know, I feel like the government's going to come in and some of these regulatory efforts and say, well, human nature has been put on blast. We're going to have to tamp it down in some way. All right, well, it's terrible at that. Giving us a lot to think about for future debates. I'm going to have the results in 45 seconds. Before we get to that, I want to let you know that we're still in the middle of our Intelligence Squared uh, season. And later this month, we're going to be in New York City debating whether the Republican Party should renominate Donald Trump in 2020. Uh, for this one, we have uh, Jeff Flake, the former senator from Arizona, the New York Times, Brett Stevens, and the former Secretary of State for Kansas, Chris Kobach. You can buy tickets on our website, iq2us.org. Okay. I now have the results, and I want to let you know that voting continues online. For people who are watching via live stream, you can vote online. Uh, and if you even watch this uh, or listen to this uh, video, uh, this uh, debate afterwards on video or on podcast, you can continue to vote online. So the resolution, can constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. We had you vote twice in the first vote. 38% of you agreed with this resolution, 27% disagreed, 35% were undecided. Those are the first results. Remember again, it's the difference between the first vote and the second vote that determines our winner. In the second vote, the team arguing for the resolution, constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. Their first vote was 38%. Their second vote, 36%. They lost two percentage points. The team arguing against the resolution, their first vote was 27%. Their second vote was 59%. They pulled up 32 percentage points. That makes them the winners. The team arguing against the resolution, constitutional free speech principles can save social media companies from themselves. Our winners. Congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared US. We'll see you next time. <laughs>